Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, everybody? Another awesome show with one of my favorite angel investors today. Guest is a three times founder turned investor who's currently a general partner at Duro Ventures, Climate Capital, and DVC. Today's episode, we start by hearing about our guest's own entrepreneurial journey, then dipping his toe in angel investing by making his first investment into Goodreads. Then our guest shares the differences of using angelist syndicates, rolling funds, the benefits of each. We touch on why our guest decided to devote his career to help solve climate change. He explains what areas are attractive why he places a lot of emphasis on the founder when making an investment decision, and what he thinks about today's valuations. As we wind down, we talk about specific companies he's invested in, from food delivery to gaming companies. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. Taxes, they're inevitable, but minimizing your client's tax burdens is a key part of your role as a financial advisor. If you're tired of the headaches from manual calculations, spreadsheets, and juggling different software during the portfolio transition process, then we just the YCharts update for you. YCharts has released its new transition analysis tool. With this new feature, you can automate the many time-consuming tasks typically associated with this part of the proposal process. This tool lets you, the advisor, easily get insights into a client's current positions, cost basis, gains, losses, and tax implications, making transitions smoother. Not only that, but clients can also adjust portfolio allocations in real time, building trust and collaboration with their advisors. Click on the link in the show notes to start your free YCharts trial so you can explore this new tool today. And don't forget, get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial and tell them what I sent you. Please enjoy this episode with Climate Capital's Sandeep Ahuja. Sandeep, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. I'm excited to talk to you about all sorts of stuff today. You got a lot going on, my man. Where in the world do we find you here in Close to spring break. By the way, it feels like a, we're recording this in mid-March. feels like we're about a month away from a global spring break reopening. Does it feel that way up in Napa? Not quite. Right now, it's a, a bit rainy and, and the Napa population skews a little older. So uh, I imagine this was like in many other cities across the country. Easier to social distance out on those vineyards, though. Come on, a bunch of farmers, hardy farmers. No doubt. No doubt. And it's the one beautiful thing. There's been a lot of outdoor dining with no space restrictions, which has been nice. I miss it up there. I need to get back up that way. We came through there on our long drive about this past summer, but it was during all the fires going on. So we... Uh, that was real. Fires yeah, were real. That was legit. It, it was so real. We had six air filters going out in the house and we were Napa proper many miles away from the actual fires. And still... Our smoke alarm went off in the middle of the night because there was so much smoke seeping in through all the closed windows and our six air filters didn't quite filter it enough. Yeah, we were actually coming through Reno and stayed in a hotel. And I, I'm pretty laid back about this stuff, but at check-in, they're like, you can't smoke in your room, yada, yada. We were in our room and it just smelled like somebody had smoked six packs of cigarettes. And I requested we move rooms partially because I didn't want to have to pay for it. 
we just didn't know that all the fires were going on. And that was when there was a fire tornado <laughs> in the area. Jeez. So we unplugged from social media for a little while. All right. Anyway, let's talk about investing. Your background originally, Stanford entrepreneur. Give us the quick uh, origin story before you became more of a full-time investor. Yeah. I mean, well, Stanford uh, origin story. I mean, the, the founding bug started back then. So Stanford CS, and frankly, tried to start my first company in 1997. Still remember buying a domain for it. What was the domain? Campus Source. We were building a sort of resource site for, this is 1997, a resource site for organizations on campus and students on campus to go online and find each other and find things. So close to the Facebook. I know, I know. You almost had it. <laughs> Funny thing. So my Stanford CS project actually was a social network called Trust Circles for the Palm OS. We literally built a social network to ask and tell your trust circle things. So I like to think that I started one of the first social networks. For anyone who remembers the Palm OS, that used to be a thing. My roommate, I moved to San Francisco in 01, and my roommate worked for a company. I'm blanking on the name of it, but it allowed you to do the earliest sort of e-commerce activities on the Palm. And he'd break out his little pencil used for the Palm Pilot. <laughs> yeah. And he'd be like, here, we can just buy some movie tickets. And I'm like, this is taking forever. Let's just go to the theater. Why would anyone want to buy tickets right. on their phone? This is so dumb. Right. Fast forward. Totally. Yeah. Fast forward. So yes, to Stanford CS, graduated though into a crazy market of literally startups that I was going to interview with going out of business before the interview. So I ended up joining uh, JP Morgan, did banking there. Then went back into tech, did some product at eBay and product at MySpace before I was finally bit by the entrepreneurial bug again. And frankly, I haven't looked back. Tell us a little bit about the uh, entrepreneurship story, and then we'll hop over to the investing world. For sure. So the first, that social network that I, you know, Palm OS, Trust Circles, I, you know, I was at MySpace being like, we had this great opportunity to build this network of recommendations on top of the social graph and they, at the time, were just making so much money that I think at that time, Google had just made an investment. So there was not a lot of innovation. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to leave and do this on my own. So the first company I tried to start was called Friendfoot to sort of ask and tell your friends things. And I have a patent to this day around it. But yeah, long story short, solo founder in LA back in 2006 was tough. So came up to the Bay and joined the founding team at a company called Rich Relevance. We ended up raising, I think, almost $100 million over the course of the, the years of his existence. I left after two years to go start another company, more in the social impact space. If you know the nonprofit Kiva.org, mm -hmm. uh, I helped launch Kiva back in 2005, six, And frankly, that was a real turning point for me. Matt and Premal and Jessica just uh, built something incredible. And I realized I wanted to be at that intersection of tech and impact. So well, even while I was at Rich Relevance, I was like, I got to get into impact. What do I do? And so left to start to set a company. It was called The Extraordinaries at the time. They pivoted and finally sold under the name Sparks. But we built this micro-volunteering platform because one thing I realized at Kiva and my co-founders at The Extraordinaries I realized on their own was it all these people that wanted to come in and do things for not just nonprofits, but imagine the 49ers or any kind of brand that has a brand loyalty. So we built a platform for them to kind of micro-volunteer and build those relationships. Anyways, left that after some co-founder drama to start Blismo, which was my first foray into climate. Ran that for several years as kind of a profitable side business. Really just been investing since. Awesome. So... You're one of my favorite people to follow on uh, the investing networks. We've invested in, I imagine, about half a dozen, dozen investments together. And you've got a lot different going on. And we'll let you start to lay out your framework and thesis for what's going on. You were certainly early to a number of things, early to angel lists, syndicates, early to climate as a investment thesis. 
what was the beginning sort of inspiration or uh, kind of approach and framework that you started? Was it just you're going to do a few angel deals on your own and invest in some friends? Was it actually you started some funds? Like, how did it all begin? This is, I imagine, almost a decade ago. Yeah, 2013 is when the platform launched. But I think my first check was about a decade ago into a, a buddy's company, right? Like, I think all angel investing typically starts as your friend is starting something and you want to get involved. So that was my first check. Ended up not working out. But another friend of mine was starting another company called Goodreads. So I was like, I believe in you. Let me write you this check. And that turned into, you know, exit to Amazon. So like, hey, I'm good at this. But that kind of was what really wet my appetite around angel investing. But really got me into it, though, was the syndicate platform. I knew Naval back in the day. And so when he launched syndicates, I was like, dude, Naval, like, I want to be the impact syndicator on the platform. Again, that was something I was excited about. And he's like, look, that sounds great. But we just launched it. Just bring us some deals. We're just looking for great deal flow right now. So I actually brought two of the first few deals to the platform. One was Retargeter and the second was Change.org. And the funny thing is, right around the time they started doing some press around it, Naval gave Forbes my name. Like Tim Ferriss had also brought one of the first syndicates and he could have given Tim. But the point he wanted to make is, you can be a nobody like this random Sandeep Ahuja dude <laughs> and, and launch syndicates. And so it was my name that he gave to Forbes. And after that, all of a sudden, I was in the business. Like I didn't mean to be. It's not something I'd set out to do, but I was just getting deal flow and I had his LPs. And I started taking this a lot more seriously and started spending time with the ball and others trying to understand how do I go pro. And that's what I've worked to do over the last seven years now. Tell me a little bit about what the company's sectors, industries sort of focus uh, has been over the past 10 years? Are there any general themes that you've been uh, really looking for? And give us a little also color on what the syndicate looks like. Are you doing Series A? Are you doing startup? What size checks? All that good stuff. Some things I'm about to say, I think today are thankfully more broadly accepted. But back when I was doing it, maybe less so, backing mission-driven founders. I realized at Kiva how a mission, even though that was a nonprofit, just brought out so much more from people. Everyone was sort of unified around what they were doing. First company I said I co-founded, Rich Relevance. We were a great business, but I wouldn't say we were mission-driven. But the second company I co-founded was very mission-driven. And even though we weren't nearly as successful, again, that same drive and energy and whatnot. So I realized that if I could find those companies that were both going to be successful and have a mission that would inspire customers, employees, team members, et cetera, that may be the best place to bet. Because at the end of the day, capital is no longer a constraint, it was talent. And so how do you optimize for talent? You have people join a mission. And so backing mission-driven founders has kind of been the broad thesis, frankly, ever since. And climate specifically, as I mentioned, or I think you mentioned, it's been something I've been involved with for several years. My first climate check was 2015, even though I've been advising and doing other stuff prior to that. And that sort of became its own sort of sub thesis. So I now have two vehicles. Uh, I've got Dura Ventures, which is my broadly backing mission driven founders, and then Climate Capital, which is my strictly climate focused vehicle. We'll dig into both of those before we hop over. For the people who aren't familiar, we've actually talked about it quite a bit, had a fair amount of professional angel investors on the podcast. But how does it work for your syndicate? Is it you have a few hundred, a few thousand people? Are they you know, the minimum they can invest, they have to be accredited. Just give us the quick kind of two minute overview of how it actually works for people who are listening who may want to be investors as well. Totally. And um, so a lot of credit to Naval and Ivy for what they launched with AngelList and then to Ken Nguyen, uh, who you had in your show a little while ago, for what he's extended with Republic, which spun out of AngelList and sort of democratizing access to this asset class. 
But yeah, I mean, the long and the short of it is folks who are accredited investors can go to AngelList and back leads that they want to get deal flow from. And if accepted into the syndicate, they get invited to deals. And it's up to them. It's Everything's deal by deal. There's no commitment to back a syndicate. And then you kind of on a deal by deal basis decide if you want to invest. The default minimum is 1K. Different syndicate leads have different philosophies as to what the minimum is. I've defaulted nearly all my syndicates to 1K because of that same reason of democratizing access. And if someone wants to just put in a thousand bucks, by all means do. And if someone wants to put in 50, that's their prerogative. It's something I suggest to all my listeners. I mean, look, we have almost 100,000 investors, a lot of people on this podcast who email in and say, hey, look, I want to follow along Med, with what you're investing in. And because I'm also a public fund manager, it creates huge headaches and problems, and it just makes it a regulatory burden. So listeners, I suggest go follow some deep and others on there. And even if you are nervous, like he said, you can start to dip your toe in the water with a thousand bucks in some of these investments. And if anything, my personal experience, we've talked a lot about here. I've been doing this since 2014 on AngelList, actually just had today probably the largest liquidity exit that goes back to 2015 of any investment. I actually wish it wasn't a liquidity investment because I think the company <laughs> has more upside, but it goes to show you start to learn about these companies and ones that are doing cool things that also, by the way, apply to your personal life, apply to your business. And you can start to understand the whole game. You don't have to put it all in in the first deal. My God, don't do that, listeners. But check out Sundeep. He writes some of the best memos and overviews. Don't email me. Email him, by the way. But check it out and start to get understand the process because I think it's a massive learning benefit as well as experiential too, to be able to go through it and start to put real money to work. 100%. I think if you're accredited, absolutely get on AngelList and find leads you like. And again, definitely back several and sort of find the deals you like of the that deal flow. And if you're not accredited, there's Republic, which actually is now accredited and non-accredited. But the opportunity to sort of invest in what you like is pretty awesome. And then you see it in the wild and you're like, hey, I'm an investor in that company. And it's always a good feeling. So talk to me a little bit about the challenges of being a syndicate lead. You also have, I believe, a rolling fund. You could tell us a little bit about what that actually is. Do you have a preference for one or the other? How's it evolved over time? It's funny. I was just on a call with an LP right before this explaining rolling funds, which I think are still novel in the ecosystem. So for those who aren't aware, what a rolling fund is, when you invest in a typical fund, a person's raising X amount of money and it takes them a year, year and a half, sometimes less, sometimes more. And in that period of time, they're raising money and they're not really able to invest unless they invest personally and warehouse it into the fund. What a rolling fund allows folks to do, it's it's sort of like a subscription into um, an investment vehicle. Something that has Netflix or Prime is, you know, you're shopping in your movies. It's This is your investment. Every quarter, you're going to put in X amount of money into this fund. So that's what the experience is to the LP and then to the fund manager. I don't have to wait a year to start investing because I get the money today. And so I can write, start writing checks today. And so I'm a huge fan of it. On both sides, it, I think it just solves a lot of problems. I think there's a lot of software behind the scenes that kind of makes things on a quarterly basis fair if you invest one quarter versus another and how things work. But just simplifying it, it's a subscription to a fund. So let's start talking a little bit about your thesis, how you think about investments. Maybe you can walk us through some investment process and sourcing the deals. You've been doing this long enough now that I'm sure in your head, it feels like second nature. But to many people, maybe just peel back the curtain. Feel free to start with climate, if that's what you want to talk about. 
but talk just a little bit about the broad opportunity set and then how you go about actually uh, writing the checks. One thing I think having been in the ecosystem for a long time as a founder and then now an investor, deal flow is thankfully something that I have no shortage of from either founders in my network, LPs now refer deals that we'll look at. And so to be honest, I had too much deal flow for me to do this. And the syndicates have no management fee. <laughs> and so the rolling funds do because they're funds. And so um, there's a little bit of cash coming in from there. But from a just how do I manage my life perspective, too much deal flow and not sure what to do with it. And that was at Republic for a while and AWS for a while, partially because the day job while sort of doing these syndicates on the side. Now with rolling funds, I can kind of go full time, which is what I've done, which is amazing. But to answer the question around deal flow, it comes from all places. And then the big question is, what do you do with it? So what I've now done is I've actually started something that I, I think is novel on AngelList. I'm not totally familiar with every syndicate out there, but we're starting what we think is sort of the first sort of decentralized venture capital fund on AngelList. I have put out an application process and I had six people who were LPs in my syndicate who I started a new syndicate with. It's called DVC. And the reason for that was it, I'm not scalable, but this team now is. And so now when deals come my way, we have a process by which those deals get funneled into DVC. And DVC, we have an IC process where someone steps up to run the deal, another person um, steps up to be investment committee, and then they kind of work with the founder and run diligence, et cetera, et cetera. And then if a deal sort of passes IC, then the deal runner will kind of run it via the syndicate. And what we've further realized is just as there's hundreds, if not thousands of syndicates out there, different LPs have different preferences, right? So what we're starting to do now is launch verticals. So we're actually launching, we just launched actually Sapien, our first vertical, which is for health and human potential. So for folks out there passionate about that, you should back Sapien as a syndicate. We launched another one called Trademark, which is for consumer tech and brand. We launched another one called Mint for FinTech, another one called Beyond for Frontier Tech. And so what we're doing is, is we're building this infrastructure to ingest deal flow, be it from me, be it from LPs, be it from the partners themselves, process to evaluate those deals, and then run the allocation on the most appropriate syndicate so that those folks who care about consumer tech and healthcare can back those syndicates. But if you don't care about frontier tech, then don't back beyond. That's what we've set up as a scalable infrastructure for non-climate. And I'm currently in the process of actually applying that same infrastructure for climate because of the explosion in deal flow the last six months that before uh, I and my investment partner in climate capital can manage. But now I literally added two people to the team in the last three weeks because there's just so much deal flow. It almost sounds like a distributed VC firm in some ways. Is that a reasonable description? 100%. That's kind of the, we were this morning having a branding call for what DVC stands for. You know, first it was a hat tip to Duro, which was the name of the fund I'd started in Initially, we were calling it Duro Venture Collective, but now we're our own fund. We're distributed. We, again, as I said, we source from our LPs and we source through my network or the founders I've invested in. And of course, the team itself is going to continue to grow and scale. As we launch these new verticals, we will be able to add experts now for each vertical and grow the team. And then they'll kind of become part of this sort of decentralized firm. So what's the sort of size? You guys write in checks of like a couple hundred grand or a couple million? Is it traditionally seed series A? What are the companies look like? Yeah, so it varies. I think the short answer is is we're agnostic. If we find an allocation in a company we're excited about, you know, I've run Series C syndicates. In fact, a company called Mosaic, which is my first climate syndicate, was a Series C. But we tend to be early stage. And the reason for that is that's where we can leverage our network. The fact that we're all, or most of us are former founders on the team can kind of get an allocation. And then from a check size perspective, 100 to 200 is probably the average 
the largest syndicate I've ever run is the 800K syndicate, but I'd say the average is definitely you know 100 to 250. And when we're talking about a pre-seed round or seed round or even an A, that ends up being a large enough bite for it to matter, but not so large that you're wondering, wait, why are we 90% of the round? Like, where are the other investors? I always, when I work with founders, want to make sure that even if my syndicate can raise more, I'm doing what I can to help them put together the best round we can. And so I'll say, look, even let's cap us at 250 and let's go find you some incredible other investors to round out this round. Because look, the next time they raise, I'll hopefully get a larger allocation because it'll just be a larger round. So let's start with climate. Again, you were pretty early here. Others like Kosala, I was reading a Chris Saka interview today where he was talking about climate and said, I feel like the perception was that many of the early VCs didn't have that great of returns, but he's saying that actually they had decent returns. It just the early kind of pioneers there, it was really expensive, a lot of OPEX, a lot of just capital, whereas today it could be more of a dollar light version versus the past. How has this changed over the past 10 years? What is the opportunity set? Walk us through the uh, thesis. Yeah, I mean, so I think it's, if we're going to talk about my climate story, it's got to start with my dad. So my dad worked for Calaira B for 40 years. And of course, being an Indian boy, he wanted me to be a doctor. And yet he was out there kind of helping us all breathe cleaner air. And so uh, when I got to school, went in engineering, computer science, and then again, Kiva was this like turning point for me. We're like, okay, I want to be at impact. But I realized that poverty, which was Kiva's mission, wasn't mine, what was. And, and I just kept coming back to climate. And the more I dig into this existential risk, I think what attracted me to it is it just makes everything worse. Climate change exacerbates poverty. It exacerbates disease. It exacerbates income inequality. So to me, it was the most scalable use of my time on earth was to address this issue that was, if unaddressed, would literally make every problem worse. So that's kind of how I got into it. And the more I dig into it, the more kind of scared I got about what things might look like. In fact, I wrote a novel about a post-climate change future called Hailing on Amazon, 4.5 stars, I think. It was sort of a hunger games meets climate change to try to get people to pay attention to this issue. I did a TV pilot where we went to the Maldives to sort of capture the story of rising sea levels and the people's voices and just try to use media to kind of raise awareness around this issue that I didn't feel was getting enough attention back in 2013, 12, 14, 11, et cetera. Fast forward to your question about what's changed about sort of how we approach it. I think one, I think, first of all, on the founder side, so many of these founders are coming in and bringing experience from other companies that they've already started or companies they've worked at. And so they're bringing in their lean startup method. They're bringing in their sort of software approach. They're bringing in approaches that have already worked in industry X and applying it now to climate. So I think just the level of talent and the quality of ideas is just profound. And so that's, I think you're just having a larger base of people starting companies. And those people are um, incredibly well equipped to start those companies. Not all of it. I'm definitely seeing a, a trend there. On the flip side, yeah, technologies continue to do what technology does, which is make things better, faster, cheaper. And so those same companies, the same deck you may have looked at 10 years ago, if you look at it today, all of a sudden, it's a better, faster, cheaper way to do it because technology has improved. Cost curves have come down, et cetera. So it is a different game. It is an exciting game. The last thing I'll say is, look, while there, it may feel like a bubble right now, I mean, we're not going to stop climate change this year and then, okay, problem solved. I think the reason why you're seeing so much talent and capital put into this is I think people realize Earth is a big ship and it's going to take a while for us to turn this ship around. And so in that time, let's kind of all hands on deck for the next several years, decades, et cetera. And in that time, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to start companies and a lot of money to be made. What are some of the investment opportunity sort of themes? 
I think most people, when they think of climate change, they think particularly of energy, but there's a lot of other subsets, everything from agriculture to all protein and transportation. What are some of the areas you guys are focused on? Yeah, I mean, it, you're exactly right. I think I was, again, chatting with some this morning about kind of the different sectors that climate capital focuses on. And it may seem broad, right? Energy, transportation, ag, all protein, carbon adaptation. There's a whole new suite of companies that are propping up being like, look, climate change is already here. How do we best adapt? How do we mitigate what's already happening? And if we do address climate change, it'll be you know, death by a thousand cuts. It'll be the energy folks doing what they do, the transportation folks do what they do, the ag, et cetera. Because each of these are opportunities for us to lower emissions. And in each of these, there's going to be work to be done around adaptation. Climate change really does touch a lot of different areas, which allows us as a firm to be broad and yet focused. Love to hear you talk about any case studies, any particular companies that came across your plate, you ended up investing in the general thesis as ways to kind of let us peek over your shoulder and walk through the process of what may fit in your criteria. Sure. So I think one of the beautiful things that, and you asked this question earlier about stage, what I really like about pre-seed and seed is I don't have to be a battery expert to invest in a battery company. I need to make sure I know that the founder is legit, that the founder is coming from credibility, reference checks work, the market is broadly there, there's some customer traction, et cetera. But at that stage, it's really a bet on the founder and a bet on the broader opportunity versus Series A, for example, which it's like, okay, you need someone who really knows the space to make sure that everything's going to work the way it should before you invest to scale. So from our perspective, you know, if you're asking about case studies, if you look at the portfolio at Climate Capital Letzia, which I'm looking at right now as we speak, each of these has a story. And I can tell you why, if you want to pick one, I invested. But if I were to boil it all down, it is a passionate founder who has a unique insight and has assembled a great team and is going after a big opportunity and in some way is going to both reduce emissions and make a lot of money along the way. So give us some examples. Give you some examples. Okay. <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, some of these are still confidential, right? So I can't... I mean, you can give me some of the old ones from five years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so the one from five years ago is Mosaic. I mean, they're continuing to just do phenomenally well. They're sort of financing the Green Revolution, sort of home renovation and home solar. They've done well. The one that is sort of We've grid, they, you know, this is a perfect example of a met this incredible founder, very detailed deck about what he was going to do, and an incredibly detailed story about what he'd done and energy and utilities. But then he was talking about building a load balancing network for utilities. And like a lot of investors were turned away. They're like, oh, utilities takes forever, et cetera, et cetera. But what he saw was look, these EVs are batteries, and these batteries can be used in support of how utilities execute. And he got me fired up about that vision. And so you know, I partnered with Ramez Nam and we put a syndicate together and they've done phenomenally well. And, and it's one example of a company that is getting a lot of investor interest because what they were doing when we invested a couple of years ago may have been not that interesting because it was too risky. Now it's like they were absolutely doing the right thing at the right time. So that's one example. Rebellious going to the all protein world. Talk about a company that had to pivot. They started off doing plant-based nuggets and patties for food service and then COVID hit. They had this incredible product and no customers. And so they had to pivot to being D2C, which they've done incredibly well because they've had a, just a great product and investors every step along the way have sort of supported their mission. We'll have to take a look. I mean, I'm located in Manhattan Beach, which is right, I think it's right down the road. One of the big, is it Beyond or Impossible? I feel like is located in El Segundo. But uh, we're big fans of the Impossible and we have been trying all the various substitute 
proteins, one as a consumer, but also as a, you know, as a interested investor trying to stay curious. And we're a lot better place than we were five, 10 years ago, that's for sure, or 20 years ago, back the old Boca burgers. Yeah. I'll give you one more example from the portfolio here. It's Ampere, so hybrid electric aircraft. I still remember when I first chatted with Kevin, super interested, but what do I know about planes? Came through a strong reference. I did as much diligence as I could. And I was like, look, let's stay close. We'd love to kind of get involved the next round so I can invest behind the lead. Finally had that chance last year to get involved. And it was in the news a couple of weeks ago. They were acquired by Surfair. I made a nice market to the investment I just made a handful of months prior. I think the SPAC activity generally is opening up doors. I think Surfair plans to go public. Another company in my portfolio, like Elroy Air, they raised literally right around the day the markets were crashing in March and now are raising around or about to because of the SPAC door open, like quite a markup. So it's been fun to not only see these companies continue to execute and iterate, but to see how market conditions have affected not just climate as an opportunity, but just COVID and what that did to sort of the markets as well investing in March and April and now seeing some of the returns that we're seeing. Pretty exciting. Well, it seemed like there was this brief period where the startup ecosystem valuations compressed quite a bit, but those have seemed to have ripped right back up. Talk to that comment if that's accurate or if it's not. And what has that sort of changed over the last handful of years? I was curious, as you look at what your experience has been and more and more peers and people come into the space, what's changed? What's stayed the same there? There was a quote, I think, on Twitter around like, is, are there enough founders for all this capital? Which is something I've been talking about with another friend not too long ago. There's this flood of capital. And obviously what capital does is it drives up prices because founders can be picky and can start getting the prices that they want. So prices are definitely up and it feels a bit of a loaded. In fact, another company I invested in literally two months ago I was raising an up round now and I was able, it was a syndicate, a very private one. So I, I was only able to invite the handful of people who invested previously. And one investor was like, is this up round based on traction or just because it's 2021? <laughs> and I was like, look, a little bit of both. So, you know, broadly, I think investors are well, we should always be vigilant. I think March and April was a fun time to invest. But I think what it did is it, as a public markets kind of shook up a lot of more folks started looking at private markets as a way to deploy capital. I think just and also the general accessibility of AngelList and Republic and other platforms Vincent are doing to sort of make private capital accessible. What that does is just driving up prices. So I guess if I were to provide any commentary on sort of how to navigate this, it's just be vigilant. Always make sure that the founder you're betting on, the company you're betting on, et cetera, is you know, don't be fooled by co-investors. And also don't be turned off by a high sticker price. Like I think that when I approach investing, I don't pass on a deal. I rarely pass on a deal because of the price. Because look, either it's when you're when you're investing in startups, it's typically is you know it's zero or one. Either the company is going to go bust, and who cares if you overpaid at the seed, or it's going to be big. In which case, you'll be lucky you got in when you did. Yeah, you have a couple websites that are pretty great: Duro D U R O dot VC and ClimateCapital.co. And I like these because. And this is a compliment, by the way, this isn't negative, but they're very clean and minimalist. It's like, I feel like last time I look at like Berkshire Hathaway or, or some of these like family offices that just like have a phone number and that's it. But it's cool because it lists all your portfolio companies and, you know, it's in the dozens. How many say or you got to be close to 100? Am I counting correctly? Yeah, I've run over 100 syndicates. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I count about a dozen that I've invested in with you. And one of the fun areas that I have not, but should, given my background, I come from a farming family, 
we talk a lot about how that world is changing and you've straight up done at least it looks like almost a dozen investments in sort of the ag space and as i drive around on the tractor in kansas i often reflect and say wow why are there any people involved in this at all how is this we're maybe not a year away but maybe it's 5 10 20 from this being almost totally automated what is and you can kind of pick and pivot as you see fit what is the main opportunities in the ag space you've got everything from robotic farming to palm oil alternatives to methane reducing cow feed whatever that means tell us about any of those or any of the themes you see that is opportunity there again i think one of the beautiful things about just this wave of interest in climate is because everyone's starting to realize it's there's an opportunity people are coming in with ag backgrounds and applying a climate lens and finding opportunity. So it's not just about tech people finding climate. It's about people across industries realizing, hey, how do I reinvent my own industry in a way that's sort of climate forward? That's some of the companies you see here listed, like Mutral. You mentioned Mutral. Like they, the founders, founders get an incredible background and the other founder has become almost a friend. And every time I chat with them, I'm so fired up about what they're doing. I mean, so much methane is emitted by cows and surge, you know, people can say, you know, let's not eat cows, but that's not going to happen. A lot of people are very, very committed to eating meat. And so fine, what do you do about it? Well, what if we could reduce the methane emitted by cows? And that's what they're doing. A lot of science into it. Now there's kind of opportunities to kind of scale what their solution is across farming. But like if a company like Mutral, or frankly, a lot of these companies at scale, the climate impact is profound. Most of the companies you see here are startups. They're relatively early stage. But what's exciting is over the next several years, going back to some of these ag ones, C16 bioscience, palm oil alternative. The way palm oil is harvested, unfortunately, results in a lot of deforestation, which has a massive climate impact. It's a very dirty process. But this concept of palm oil alternative that sort of has the same properties, all of a sudden, palm oil is in everything. I don't know if you, you know palm oil well, Google it. It is literally foods and beauty and this or that. Again, it's not going to go away. So what do we do about it? Well, let's invent an alternative. And so that's what they've done. And they're just in the earliest stages of kind of scaling. But again, when they do, impact would be profound. Each of these, it's pretty exciting to see what is possible at scale. The funny thing that, and we talked a little bit about this in a prior podcast, I think we may have been talking about the non-fungible tokens and what's going on with Top Shot. But the cool thing about going through this whole process as an investor for the past seven years has been many times something will cross my plate and I'll be like, huh, that seems really dumb. And that seems very dismissive, but also at the same time, many of those have gone on to be incredible companies and just my reaction was uninformed. And so it's been a great experience whenever I have that reaction, in many cases, to almost dig deeper or at least be open-minded. And it's helped to cure some of that closed-mindedness. But I was laughing as you were talking about the methane-reducing cow feed because it seems like a crazy idea on the surface, but then as you think about it, it seems like if there's a, I don't know who to attribute this to this, but someone in your world was saying a good lens to think about investing in startups is what if it does work? If something, you know, hey, this is stupid, there's a small chance of it working, but instead of saying no, no, no on that side, say what what happens if this does work? What does the opportunity set and TAM actually look like? And that, to me, opens up a whole new perspective. And so things like Mutral, if I'm even pronouncing it right, is 
interesting in that regard because it could be a defining concept, which at its core is just, is it cow burps or cow farts or both? I guess probably both. <laughs> both, I think. Both, I think. I like to think of, so pre-seeding seed investing is investing in possibility. And I think Series A investing is investing in probability. And so when you're investing in possibility, it's really fun. Even companies I pass on that I really just hope do well, it is just so fun to meet the team and understand what vision they're trying to bring to life. And then when I do invest, I get to kind of help them in their vision and to see them again, then raise their Series A and then raise their Series B and execute. It's just the best. I mean, again, those who can do, those who can't invest, right? Like, I don't think I'll be starting a company anytime soon, but I love backing founders and helping them do what they do. It's too much work. My God, it's exhausting. All right. So I'm looking through your companies and this is so fun. Which companies, and I know this is like, they're all your children and feel free to pick a few, but as you come across them, what were some that literally stopped you in your tracks and you're like, oh my God, that's just a brilliant idea because this has happened to me a handful of times in the past decade where I said either why is no one doing this or if this works my god i have to be an investor even if it it doesn't work at least that someone's trying it is there anything that comes to mind as you come across uh, your portfolio yeah i mean i'd like to think that's most of them but first thought best thought company called chef i remember when i chatted with them i remember exactly where i was walking around actually the streets of Santa, of uh, Venice actually I was on a call with the team and what they launched was this anyone and just like Uber is everyone's private driver chef is everyone's private chef so chefs who uh, can go and sort of list their services and then families that need help with home cooking because they don't have the time or resources and they happen to have the capital to do it can sort of order food right and not just like the dish for tonight it's like for the week so my mom cooks dinner for my family every sunday my parents come and drop off a week's worth of food. What's her go-to? What's her best dish? <laughs> oh my gosh. What is, she makes Indian food. So anything she makes is the best. But I will say she's got the best guacamole in the world for any guac fans out there. And for a minute, my wife and I were in um, Memphis, Tennessee. She was there for a, a fellowship. And she was working crazy because she's in fellowship. And I was kind of traveling back and forth between the Bay. So we had to solve the food problem. And we found independently this like Indian woman who started this kind of like food delivery shop. And so that was kind of well. I didn't. We didn't have my mom. We had this like other person who we'd go buy a bunch of food with, you know, from twice a week, and bring it home and cook it. And so anyway, so long story short, when I heard about Chef, I was like, not everyone's got their mom driving distance, but who doesn't like home cooked, clean food? So there you go. It's still one of my favorites, and they're thankfully doing quite well. As you were talking, I was looking it up and literally trying to sign up, and not available in Manhattan Beach yet. You got to talk to the founder and say, L.A. I love Tom. Dream market. Come on, man. And I imagine that one, like, it's such a great marketplace. If you could just figure out, I mean, I imagine one of the biggest roadblocks would be potentially just legality or like, is that even a roadblock anymore that can like people just sell food and bring it over? 100%. So actually the only state, I don't know where it is now, but when we invested, I think we invested right after demo day, if I remember correctly, literally January 1st of that year, it had just become legal in the state of California to do what Chef does. First mover advantage into a brand new market that's still illegal in other states or most of them anyways. So yeah, the answer to the question about sort of favorites though, sometimes you meet a company like Chef like I did and I was like, oh my gosh, yes, this is perfect and I got to get involved. Others, it's a love affair before you get to invest. So that was Good Eggs. Like I loved Good Eggs. I don't know if you know them, their grocery delivery in the Bay Area. 
and then I had a chance to invest. And that's also gratifying when it's like, oh, great, I get to join this vision and join this company and be supportive. That's always a lot of fun. And, and what is Good Eggs? Is it farm egg delivery or something? For folks in the Bay Area, hopefully they know and love it. It's your farmer's market on your phone. So you basically, the best, my wife to this day wishes that Good Eggs delivered out to Napa. The best strawberries, the best fruit, the best vegetables. Anyways, the fun fact, I think the food that you even get at Whole Foods has been several days before it gets actually into the store versus Good Eggs. It's like the night before so or the day before or whatever it is. Removing the middleman, I mean, I grew up partially in Colorado and remember we used to have milk delivery. And it's funny to see some of these startups kind of come all the way back around to some of the direct consumer local ideas, which makes so much sense instead of shipping it from, I don't know how many thousands of miles away to doing something locally. That's pretty cool. Well, uh, we probably got time for another one or two. If there's any, any particularly weird ones where you're like, man, that's a bizarre idea, but okay, maybe that's a cool one. I'll give you one more and then I'd love to kind of recap a couple of things that I think your listeners might appreciate. Sandbox VR was, I think, you know, one of those people loved or hated. When I lived in Tennessee then for the six months, one thing I realized is there's not a lot to do in a lot of cities. For those of us who live in New York or LA or San Francisco, there's a lot to do. But for a lot of places, there's just not. I just come out of living in Memphis. No offense to anyone to Memphis, but I didn't find there to be a lot to do. We went to the farmer's market, did the couple of restaurants we liked and went downtown, but there was a limit to activities. And what they were promising was this concept of a holodeck in every neighborhood. If you know escape rooms, right? Escape rooms are what? An empty warehouse with like a bit of a maze. And then you make a lot of money just by sort of having people run through that maze. Imagine if the maze was digital and could be remade for the next person that comes in an hour later. That's what Sandbox VR is, right? And imagine one on every other block. So you're bored, you can go play this game with your friends or not just games, right? I mean, the vision I think is education, immersion, anything that sort of VR can deliver, but in a tactile way. So not just your goggles, it's the vest, it's the gloves, it's the sort of the full experience. I still remember pitching Andreessen, my buddy, um, uh, I shouldn't know where he's were buddy, acquaintance of mine, Andrew Chen at Andreessen, when I'd invested in saying, look, I really like this company. And a lot of kind of like pushback, like fast forward, they ended up leading Series A. But the idea of real estate, VR, like all these things that were kind of like, eh, I don't know about this. They're hit hard by COVID, but they're coming back strong. It's like Tron, essentially, right? Like it's like not too far away from that sort of reality. Okay. Since you mentioned Tron, I got to tell you about uh, a company called Arcadia.tv. Yeah, it's basically, it's the future sport. So just what I described, whereas Sandbox VR is you put on a bunch of gear and it's within a room and it's a little more constricted. What Arcadia is doing is you go to a soccer field or a football field, and then you put this VR goggles on. And then you're literally running through like digital obstacle courses. That is, anyways, check out Arcadia.tv. I was laughing as you were talking about nothing to do in town. It brought back memories to going to high school in North Carolina where people would talk about what to do. They're like, let's go meet in the Kroger parking lot. <laughs> like that is literally the most interesting thing you guys can come up with. Just go hang out in this, this parking lot. And no longer. Now you can go to your local Sandbox VR or you can go play Arcadia.tv. It's a pretty exciting world around the corner here. I would say the problem is I tried, I bought an Oculus or whatnot a couple of years ago, just trying to be an early adopter, keep up with tech and played one game for like 
six hours or something and my wife came up at like three in the morning she's like what are you doing i was like what i just gotta i just gotta complete this level she's like you know what time it is it's like four in the morning and i was like okay well let's return this tomorrow <laughs> well the one thing about both arcadia and sandbox is their social rights you gotta leave the house you gotta meet your friends it's something to do as opposed to just being in your room by yourself yeah which to me seems like the big missing piece in vr to date but seems to be changing you know when it becomes social that was the whole point of the games when we were growing up is that you're with your buddies when they figure that out then watch out i think they have well look i uh, i appreciate me on I, I wanted to kind of close with for folks who are listening one just want to plug angel list as a platform i think if you're not already on it and you were looking for access to early stage investing back some syndicates and see if you find anything you like and i think maybe you said earlier definitely pace yourself there's a lot of deal flow so for folks who are getting into it, I would absolutely say start small. Second, Republic as well, the company that I was at for a little while, for folks who are looking for expanded deal flow. And then as far as plugging what I'm working on, Climate Capital, we both have a rolling fund and a syndicate that are um, open for investment. And DVC, for folks who want to start either sending us deals or finding the deals that our network finds, back DVC as a syndicate and find the verticals you like, be it finance that we have one called mint be at frontier tech with one called beyond and that way it'll be sort of more filtered for what you're looking for and lastly before we let you go sandeep you got to tell us what's been your most memorable investment good bad in between i gotta say goodreads i mean i literally was the first non-founder user i think a double a seven number seven with user and uh, i was there right when he otis was starting it it was just so fun to see him get it off the ground and, and then when i had a chance to invest i was so excited to do so then that company gets bought by Amazon and they end up rolling it out to their full network. Like it was just, I'm just so happy for Frodus and the team there. And also just fun to be a part of that story. How's your book rated on Goodreads? Better or worse than Amazon? Goodreads uh, readers are a little harsher <laughs> than Amazon. Uh, but um, yeah, anyways, it's it's still, I think, better than most, let's put it that way. And lastly, the best way to get in touch with you, find you, is there a, a single place? Yeah, you can email me at x at duro.vc or x at climatecapital.co. But uh, LinkedIn is great. Not on Twitter much. My handle is Sunrock, but uh, you can find me there as well. I'm on Clubhouse at Sundeep. But yeah, honestly, the best thing to do is back me on AngelList. So uh, it's literally angel.co slash my name, S-U-N-D-E-E-P. Start there and we'll go from there. Awesome. Sundeep, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mab. Have a great day. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights.